Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. St. Louis journalist Sarah Kenzior has become something of a media sensation in recent years. Her success is based on her reporting on the tens of thousands of people she reaches through social media and by the success of her 2015 ebook, The View from Flyover Country. It's an insightful series of essays on the American condition. She started writing them in 2013. She's widely credited with predicting Donald Trump's election victory before just about anybody else. An updated view from Flyover Country is now out in print. We recorded an hour-long Maryville Talks Books interview with Sarah before a bookstore audience that left bank books in the Central West End last week. I began by asking how she explains her relatively sudden national celebrity. Well, it's really unfortunate, actually. Uh, I'm looking forward to the time when my expertise is not needed or valued. You know, I uh, started out studying authoritarian states in the former Soviet Union. Um, I looked at things like corruption, propaganda, um, you know, the manipulation of truth, you know, governments that uh, try to oppress its own citizens. And unfortunately, uh, that expertise became very handy in the 2016 election um, in the lead up to Donald Trump. And I was able to foresee, um, you know, a lot of different events, but the main one is basically that, you know, the Constitution is only a piece of paper unless people enforce it. Checks and balances need to actually be upheld. Our system is only as good as the people who are in it, and it turns out that those people aren't very good at all. Well, what were you saying that that reminded you of the authoritarian study? In terms of Donald Trump? Oh, yeah. You know, well, in many ways, you know, I don't want to say that this is completely borrowed because we've had demagogues uh, throughout American history. You certainly have racist demagogues. But, you know, at heart, he's a kleptocrat. He's somebody who was running in order to enhance his personal wealth and abuse that executive privilege. And he managed to get into that position to be able to do that by exploiting American pain. And when I saw him, um, you know, running for election, I knew that a lot of the things he was saying about the economy were going to resonate in a way that I don't think the national media necessarily would pick up on because they had this idea that, you know, the recession had ended, that our problems were solved, that it was smooth sailing. So there's that aspect. Um, I think also, you know, as we know in St. Louis, you know, this is a time of of turmoil and strife. In times of uh, financial hardship, you you often see xenophobia, you see racism. Uh, He tapped into pain and turned it into hate. You know, he's a vulture. He has an instinct. And he was very, very skillful um, at using the media, which itself is financially hard hit, at uh, achieving that goal. And I'm a member of the media, but I criticize it because, you know, I, I think it's a powerful tool and we need to, to hold it accountable. And I was frustrated to see the way they uh, carried out that coverage at the time. The media seemed to uh, look at that campaign early on, certainly, as, as entertainment. The uh, cable networks and even the commercial networks were saying, this guy is golden, you know, just put him on the air as much as you can and uh, the ratings will soar. Yeah, it's absolutely shameful. I mean, there's a sort of exploitative synergy. I think Trump was aware of this vulnerability of the media, of its financial vulnerability and of its moral apathy. I mean, when you launch your campaign saying that Mexicans are rapists and murderers and you continue from there to target different groups, to target individuals, you know, and have that treated like a joke, uh, like a game, it's alarming. And I think that we have this tendency in the media in general. Um, I think a certain way Ferguson was framed like that. But, you know, they found their cash cow in Donald Trump, and they did not think of the broader consequences because they didn't think that he could win. And I did think he could win, and that was the difference. One of the things the media seemed to be doing was not paying attention to, quote, flyover country, where, where the votes were going to come from. Yeah, absolutely. I think they just didn't understand 
you know, the level of hardship that people are experiencing. And, you know, I kind of want to distinguish between Trump's base, um, which I do think is, you know, xenophobic and bigoted. I think that those qualities in Trump are an attraction for them. And people who voted for Trump, people who sort of saw two options and kind of shrugged and were like, yeah, I don't like either of them, but I guess I'm going to go with this guy because of what he's promising me. Trump knew what to say. You know, he said lies that felt like truth. When he said, for example, that we were, we had a rate of 40% unemployment, you know, people on the coasts laughed. They said, you know, that's just idiocy. He's going to get called out. That's ridiculous. And I heard that and I thought that is going to resonate because that is how it feels when you can't pay your bills, when you're underemployed, when your skills aren't being utilized. That's how it feels. But of course, the way this played out in terms of votes is, you know, divided across racial lines. It was white people who were willing to overlook all of the hateful things that he said and vote for him. But everybody, I think, or almost everybody is feeling some kind of economic pain in this climate. The, The media did not have its finger on the pulse of places like Missouri. Oh, they don't care. I mean, they come in for a tornado or for Ferguson or for an election. Maybe they'll come for Greitens. But they, (laughs) I mean, it's never for anything good, I guess is kind of my point. You know, and, and it's really unfortunate because I think that that's not just true of Missouri, but of almost every state, you know, between the coasts that are outside of a major city like Chicago. We now have one out of every four journalists living in New York, D.C. or L.A. I mean, that was not the case. No, mm-hmm. Local news has been gutted. And so it's easy for them to resort to stereotypes and to not sort of have a sense of what everyday life is like. Like, you have no idea how many people with this book have asked me about, you know, what's it like to live on a farm? What's it like to live in a rural area? And I'm like, you know, I live in St. Louis. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, I live in a metro of three million people like what is wrong with you like you know they just they they genuinely don't know and what what makes me sad about is they don't care they don't have the curiosity they don't see this as something worthy of their intellectual interest you mentioned greitens and i don't don't want to digress uh, too much but he seemed he seemed (laughs) well that's that's the point he seems to have patterned himself in so many ways after the president i suppose having recognized the success the president had yeah. I mean, he launched his whole campaign. You know, this is a guy who was a Democrat and a Rhodes Scholar and all this stuff, you know, with his guns out in the field saying he's an outsider. He's not an outsider anyway. But I think that, you know, what is most striking about him as a person is this feeling of impunity, that he can do all sorts of horrible stuff um, and their children in the audience, so I won't describe all of it. But, you know, uh, personal transgressions as well as, you know, financial misdeeds, absolute corruption. I think corruption is the glue that holds them together and they feel that they cannot be caught they feel that there are not consequences. And that's really depressing because I think that, in a sense, they're right. And that comes from the GOP. The Missouri GOP, for once, is, is kind of better than the national GOP. Mm-hmm. They are trying to hold him accountable. I worry that he'll get away with it in the same way that I worry Trump will. What is it, do you think, about people who have power, who think that they can get away with so much? And we can go from Harvey Weinstein down to, to Eric Reitens and, and certainly many others if we chose to name them. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, it's a cliche that power corrupts and, you know, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But it's true. And I think that we've, you know, over the last few decades had a system where people who are in power have moved further and further away from the ordinary experience of Americans. And I kind of talk about how we got to that point in this book in which credentialism and kind of buying your way into job, you know, prestige, paying to play, getting an expensive degree, you know, cut uh, people off from the rest of society. So the people who get in are not necessarily of good moral character, 
are not necessarily intelligent, but are connected and they have that network in. You know, Trump, Greitens, all of them, they like to present themselves as outsiders. These are people with Ivy League degrees. These are people with big business connections. These are people who live lives that most of us can't even fathom. I sure as hell can't. And so, you know, I, I just, I, I think that they're out of touch in kind of the worst way, not kind of highbrow and snobby, but down and dirty and, you know, ripping off the American public. But how does someone like the president get away with it? I mean, there have been so many untruths, to use a, a softer word, uh, so many things that he has done and said, and he just moves on to the next indiscretion. Yeah, it's very frustrating. I mean, first, I think he's not getting away with it uh, with the American people. We've had more protests this year. We've had record protests in the last couple of years than we ever have. So I do think people are trying to hold him accountable. In terms of the government, it's on the GOP right now to move to impeach. Uh, it's on Mueller to indict, prospectively, you know, and he has indicted some people. But, you know, I don't want to freak everyone out, but this is basically a mafia-style kleptocratic operation that has taken over the executive branch, has bullied and threatened the GOP, uh, has bribed members of the GOP. And I think that the GOP maybe accidentally uh, got implicated in this giant international crime scheme that is our White House. Maybe they didn't intend to, but I think as Mueller bears down in this investigation, they're afraid of what people are going to find out about them. And that's why you're seeing this wave uh, of retirements, I think, within the GOP as well. You mentioned uh, the the mafia. Uh, Actually, you chose uh, a word that uh, Jim Comey is using as he promotes his book. He basically says that that was an impression that he had during the Trump administration. Yeah, and he was clear about that at his hearing last June. You know, he made references uh, to the mafia, you know, which I took as him saying, this is a mobbed up presidency. I think the subtext maybe f- either flew by people or it's just the kind of thing people don't want to confront. I mean, in a way, we're all his- we're familiar with the history of, of fascism, um, of demagogues, of kind of American-style demagogues. We've had that before. And we are, of course, familiar with, you know, plutocrats and big business. The complex complicated kind of kleptocratic webs that exist in a country like Russia um, or countries I studied when I studied the former Soviet Union are so horrifying and so hard to take apart. It's not something that sort of has permeated the American consciousness, but that's what I think we have. We have, you know, oligarchs and plutocrats and a lot of very wealthy and powerful guys trying to make policy so that they can benefit themselves. So things like the Russian sanctions, for example, and it does function like a mafia. And that's that's a very frightening thing. I don't want to play it down. You mentioned the protests a, a few minutes ago. What do you make of what's happening now with Me Too, with the kids from Parkland and with the Black Lives Matter and, and others who are out there on the streets? I mean, I, I think it's great. You know, I, I encourage people to keep doing it, even if they don't seem to be getting a result. Because part of this, I think, part of what we need to do as citizens is to not accept autocracy. We should expect it. That is what we've been giving. But we should never, ever accept it. And to raise your voice and remember your values and find other people who share your values and build those networks, I think is very, very important to just sort of show that there is this discrepancy between what people want and what their government is giving them. Do you have the sense that they will? And most of these are young people. They're our future. Do you think we can count on their voting in November? I think they will. I think if you look at the turnout uh, in states that have special elections, you know, you're seeing really, really high numbers. I think if the elections are free and fair, which is not a guarantee, you will see a Democratic win. You know, one thing I like to say is, like, I'm grateful for those young people, but we as adults should not be putting the pressure on them to lead us because they need to be cared for. They're often traumatized, you know, the kids uh, from Parkland especially. And so I think, you know, we need to take up that mantle, too, and offer them support, but fight alongside them. Okay. 
moving away from politics for a moment, I have a, a quote here from an interview that I saw that uh, you had given recently in which you say, I love St. Louis, but St. Louis will break your heart. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's based on living here. You know, I know a lot of people, including myself at times, have you know, been in very difficult economic situations. I know a lot of people, I mean, basically every friend I have who's black has been, you know, a target of racial discrimination. I have friends who've been tear gassed. I have friends who've been unlawfully detained. It's a hard place, uh, you know, and then you add to that kind of a lack of um, opportunity in comparison to more economically thriving places. And it can be tough. But um, as I said, I, you know, I do love it. It's the place, you know, where my kids were born, where I'm raising them. When it's your family, you know, you, you put your heart into your city. You want a better future for them and, you know, and, and for others. The other thing is, is I think because we're in Missouri, because things are cheaper, uh, even if we're all poorer, you do have the, the freedom, I think, to experiment more. You have the freedom to be more unconventional. I think if you're in New York, you're constantly climbing that career ladder, and that encourages conformity. And if you deviate off the path, it might affect you uh, financially. It might, you know, you lose your job, and then you just plummet to the ground. Here, you know, we can kind to like have a little more free way of life in that sense intellectually you know so it's kind of a mixed bag i should explain to the audience at home that a big black cat just walked across in front of us here you're not superstitious are you i don't know man my book is number 666 on amazon right now (laughs) it's all kind of adding up i mean i i was blaming jared kushner i figured he poxed me or something but you know it's not going to get on the radio isn't it (laughs) Well, I, I, think maybe, it, I, 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 I think maybe it will. You know, <laughs> in, in going back uh, over your book, which uh, I read a couple of years ago and had to refresh uh, my memory for this occasion, and one of the things that is very, very clear to me is that what you wrote in 2013, 2014 holds up and stands up very well today in so many different areas. Are you prescient? I mean, people like to say that. I think more I have a flair for the obvious. Uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, I, I tell the truth. You know, I'm an honest person. I, I think that some of the things they say make people uncomfortable. I think they maybe don't want to look at, at certain things, especially structural problems. I'm kind of sad that my book still holds up. I'd really like it to go out of date. I'd especially like my writings about Trump, um, you know, that are new to the collection to go out of date. And I I look forward to that time. But I think what it shows is that in the U.S., you know, we have deep structural problems. We have economic inequality. We have systemic racism. We have opportunity hoarding by elites. We have geographical inequality. And those things have not changed. They've become entrenched. And the Trump administration is entrenching them further by stripping away the social safety net and allowing corruption on on a scale I think we've never had. What kind of uh, reaction do you get from your, your readers abroad? Well, often I hear that they are experiencing the same thing. That was something I first noticed when I was writing these essays originally for Al Jazeera. Like when I talk about St. Louis and the problems we're experiencing versus, say, you know, San Francisco or New York, I would hear from people living in the middle of Canada talking about Vancouver and Toronto. I would hear from people living in, you know, parts of India and, you know, talking about, you know, Mumbai or something. Like basically a version of this for every country, for the UK. And I thought that that was interesting. And I think it's interesting now because you see the same pattern across the world. You see rising right-wing demagoguery. You see more authoritarian states. I think what's happening in, in Eastern Europe, in particular in, in Poland and Hungary, is alarming. Uh, in Turkey, and I think that some of it comes out of this incredible frustration people were feeling and a willingness of the absolute worst wealthy people in each country to exploit that pain. 
you know, people in other parts of the world, as you have indicated, are, are moving to the right. It seems to me that once again, the, the president plays a role in this. I mean, countries all over the world now are talking about fake news, their leaders are. And obviously that's coming from the kinds of uh, debate and dialogue they're hearing here. I think it is and it isn't. I mean, one thing that struck me about Trump, you know, was how similar he was to Central Asian autocrats, for example, or how similar he was to Putin, not just their personal relationship, but a kind of rhetorical style and a, and a set of values. I wrote an article way back in March 2016, you know, thinking that Trump would win, called uh, Trump Minbashi, comparing him to um, Turk Minbashi, who was the, the former dictator of Turkmenistan. And so this whole fake news, this whole bombardment of um, propaganda, disinfo, conspiracy theories, lies, you know, to the point where your head is spinning, that's something that's existed in these, you know, former Soviet authoritarian states for a very long time. It's also, I think, kind of Trump's just the way he acts naturally, so it works really well, but, you know, Russian scholars have been writing about this for a long time, and Russia is a contrived propaganda strategy that has really transformed their political culture. Here, I think Trump is making an Americanized version of this. It's very tabloidy, it's very salacious, and it, you know, feeds that appetite, um, you know, this sort of plot twists, like Sean Hannity being Michael Cohen's <laughs> third source. You know, it's like we're all living in this absolutely horrendous movie that would be rejected as a script for being too unbelievable, yet yeah. here we are. Yeah. So. But he knows how to use the media. He knows how oh, to ex- exploit it And he's way. smart about it. I mean, you know, everyone's like Trump's a moron. And on one hand, I'm like, well, okay, yeah. You know, in terms of having a coherent geopolitical strategy, sure. In terms of having an understanding of human emotion, not necessarily of his own, but of others, I think he's very skillful, and I think he's been using using the media, manipulating the media for four straight decades. And people should not underestimate that ability. That is such an important ability. And in an age of social media, it's an ability that's hard to hold accountable. We have to take a break. Let's do that now. We're talking with Sarah Kenzior, who's the author of The View from Flyover Country. We'll be back uh, to continue the conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our conversation with Sarah Kenzior, who is the author of The View from Flyover Country. We're at Left Bank Books, by the way, and uh, have a nice crowd here. Sarah, how does a, a young lady like yourself decide she wants to get a Ph.D. in authoritarianism? That's when, that's when I was legit a young lady. <laughs> I don't think I can make that claim anymore. Um, you know, I've always been interested in repressive societies. I've always been interested in injustice. I mean, that sounds a little bit weird, but, you know, as a kid, uh, the kind of books I was attracted to were books like A Wrinkle in Time, you know, where you find a young girl fighting these, these kind of repressive powers. As a student, I was always very interested in history. And the thing that always bugged me um, when I would look at, say, Nazi Germany, Germany was not so much, you know, how did Hitler exist, but how did people allow this? Why, where were the people standing up for others? Where are the people preventing that? And so that question of accountability and of moral necessity has haunted me my whole life. Um, and so, you know, to be in the situation we're in now is nightmarish. And I feel, you know, compelled to speak out about it. I felt compelled to speak out about it from the start. You mentioned Nazi Germany. I'm, I'm reluctant in a way to bring this up, but it does come up a lot. And that is people see what's going on in this country today with regard to immigrants and treatment of the press and, you know, creating a system whereby or a a, a scenario whereby the press is is suspect. And they look back to the 1930s. 
you know, my own opinion is that's kind of a dangerous thing to do, but it's almost irresistible not to do it. I think that we need to be looking at all sorts of different authoritarian regimes. I mean, in a sense, I, I feel like the Internet, the invention of the Internet, the spread of it, is a breaking point in human history where it makes it harder to look back at previous eras and make a direct comparison because we're dealing with an entire you know, new kind of transnational relationships, new kind of communications technology. But a lot of the same themes come up, the same policies that Trump wants to put into practice, the same scapegoating of ethnic minorities. And then you look at things like what ICE is doing to you know, quote-unquote illegal immigrants or what's happening to DACA, you know, and, and just stuff like Charlottesville. It's incredibly alarming. And I think that that's one of those things where we need to consistently condemn it, even if it's happening a lot. I mean, that makes it all the more important. You don't just get used to it. You, just don't, you don't just say, oh, it's the Nazis again. You know, you have to really keep an eye on that and not let it grow and not excuse it. But of course, uh, in order to for us to take advantage of it as a society and work against it, we have to know it. We have to know what that was. And there was a poll that came out the other day showing that uh, young Americans today, to a very large number, have no idea what Auschwitz was. Yeah, I saw that poll. I think it was something like 42%, almost half didn't. Yeah. And that, that frightens me. You know, I'd like to know the ages of that. I'd like to compare they, them they with... Re- um, they refer to them as millennials, millen- which is yeah, a huge I mean, population. That's a huge today. population. I'm on the tail end of that population <clears throat> You know, it makes me wonder what's being taught in school. But, you know, a lot of people after the election were coming to me like, you know, what do I read? And they want to kind of like guidebooks and tips and that kind of thing. I was like, read history, like read world history, become familiar with it, because it's going to seem very chaotic from here on in. It's going to seem like nothing you've ever seen before in America, but it has happened before. And you need to look at, you know, the worst episodes in American history, at Jim Crow, at slavery, at internment camps, at all those things. And then also look at other countries and how these, you know, incremental changes lead to something absolutely horrifying. And then you got to just, you know, you got to clamp down and you got to fight it early. What's the role for today's media in all of that? I think it's to expose corruption. I think it's to tell the truth, even if that's uncomfortable. I think that there's this sort of both sidesism, this sort of horse race attitude. You know, to me, there, there's nothing amusing about this. I mean, I, I'm cool with people laughing at Trump for, you know, <laughs> because he's, yeah, there are, there are laughable things. Uh, uh, there are humorous, unfortunate things about him, but the situation itself is very serious and should not be treated as entertainment. And I think that, you know, not letting up, not letting anything go and making the connections between all these different controversies. Every day we're hit with a wave of scandals and they seem like they're not related. They often are. Um, and I think investigating the backgrounds of this set of characters that we're presented with is very important because actually a lot of this stuff, um, especially related to Trump and mafia connections, criminal connections, Kremlin ties, was reported. There were reports all through the 80s, all through the 90s, even, you know, while he was hosting The Apprentice, of his financial misdeeds, of his criminal ties. They are in the public domain. Like, I feel like my epitaph is going to be like, it was in the public domain. Because, you know, sometimes people are like, how do you know this? How do you have all this secret info? I'm like, I literally, I don't. I, like, went to the Village Voice archives from the 80s and went and read Wayne Parrott. Like, I don't have an inside source. I'm just doing my research. You know, I'm doing the stuff I did as a PhD student, only I'm doing it in journalism. Uh, ironically, he may save some newspapers 
because uh, publications like the New York Times and Washington Post, which I think most people would agree are doing a great job, and at this, uh, okay. Washington Post is doing a, a real good job. <laughs> they just won two Pulitzers. Uh, for, yeah, they're, they're, they're doing they're a good done. job. You don't think the Times is doing it? I think they're a mixed bag. You know, the Times still owes an explanation for why they had a headline saying that Trump had no connection with Russia. The Times should stop running soft-focused puff pieces about neo-Nazis that, you know, bring out how human and likable they are. The Times has done some very irresponsible things. They've also done some great reporting, um, especially on environmental issues, on some other issues to the administration. So it's not like everyone at the times is bad, but I have been disappointed in them, and I, I think it is important you know, to get that explanation about what they did with their Russia coverage. Their subscriber base is also soaring all of a sudden as a result of all of this. Yeah, Same with the Post. They advertise themselves as, you know, the free press is being attacked, which is absolutely accurate, and here is a way to support not just our particular paper, but the principle of the free press, and theoretically, I agree with that, but I think you know, with that power comes responsibility. I, I do think that the Washington Post has done a very good job I think that the Times should be more responsible about what they cho- choose to cover and how they choose to frame it. You know, there's a difference between exploring a topic and, and glamorizing it, and I worry they fall on the latter half of that. You know, we're hearing a lot uh, today about Stormy Daniels, needless to say. And we're also hearing that it's probably not going to be the Russia thing that's going to bring Trump down if he's brought down. It's going to be Stormy Daniels. You agree? It may be. I think the connection between the two is obviously Michael Cohen. You know, I like Stormy Daniels, and I like her lawyer a lot. And I'm, St. Louisan. Yes, St. St. Louisan. If he comes, if you're listening to this, I'll take you to Annie Guns. That's what I heard is his favorite place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think she's brave to come forward. I'm glad that she, you know, the important thing about Stormy Daniels isn't the sexual relationship. It's the threats. It's the, the threats of violence, because that is a tactic that Trump's team of goons, his lawyer goon squad, has been using since time immemorial from his days with Roy Cohn, who is a very important figure that is not explored enough, to what's going on with Michael Cohen. And so I think that she helped bring that up. I think that, you know, together as a team, they, they helped uh, lead Americans to a greater understanding of what this operation is about. Roy Cohn, of course, uh, who was uh, an aide to Joseph McCarthy back in the 50s during that anti-communist uh, era, and uh, maintained his office in New York for many years and was a close associate and mentor in many ways to uh, to Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump is a person who's had basically no friends. He has wives and he has lawyers. And Roy Cohn was the only person who you could really think of as, you know, his friend. They called each other all the time. They were very, very close. Roy Cohn is one of the worst people probably in American history. He was not just Joe McCarthy's lawyer. He was a lawyer for the mafia. He was somebody who threatened, who bullied. He was a he was a Jewish anti-Semite. He was a gay homophobe. You know, people who, uh, you know, interviewed him regularly, like Wayne Barrett, you know, thought he was lizard-like. He was Satan-like. I mean, he's never done anything good. And he taught Trump this strategy. Um, you know, he also mentored Roger Stone, who also embraced the strategy of attack, 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 lie, lie, lie. Nothing matters. And I always think to myself, if you're Donald Trump, you're born into wealth, you have everything you want, and you want a friend, why do you make Roy Cohn your friend? Of all the people in the world, like, who's friends with Roy Cohn? I mean, that, that's just weird. You know, and Cohn groomed this whole little coterie of uh, goons, Manafort, Stone, uh, Atwater, you know, and so the story of Trump really goes back to that mentorship with Cohn. I think if you if you read about Roy Cohn, who interestingly enough does not have a significant biographer because he was always the biographer is always threatened with lawsuits, you will learn how Trump operates in the media economy, in the political world. You, you will learn quite a bit. 
I kind of get the feeling that you don't think much of Roy Cohn. (laughs) How would I get that idea? Roy Cohn was extremely intelligent. Roy Cohn, you know, was just amazingly, amazingly smart and used all his powers for evil. I mean, he never did anything good. He was upfront about it. He bragged about it. I mean, if Roy Cohn, you know, down in hell is listening to this interview, he's thrilled. This is how he wanted to be remembered, you know? So there you go. And I think that Trump was his creation. I think Trump was something moldable and malleable. And Cohn was Trump's entree into this world of of mafiosos, of shady business deals. Mm-hmm. When Trump was taking advantage mm-hmm. of uh, New York's hard times, Trump always takes advantage of hard times. He loves uh, collapse. He loves when things go wrong. Cohn was there uh, to defend him and help him get what he wanted and also to hook him up with a lot of very shady characters. And they boasted openly about that. The same flaunting that you see today uh, was perfected in the 80s uh, by Trump and Roy Cohn. And yet I think a lot of people don't know that part of the history of Donald Trump or or going back to McCarthy even. Yeah, and it's frustrating. I mean, again, learn history. And that was one of the things I felt was really lacking in the 2016 coverage was, you know, how did Trump get into this position of power? People really believed he was the guy from The Apprentice. You know, his voter base believed that. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of the media, I think especially younger people, knew him as that. And the idea that Trump was very corrupt, that he was, in fact, a terrible businessman. He kept going bankrupt over and over. And you got to kind of think, well, how did he stay afloat? Who financed him? Who brought him back to life? Those are all important questions to look at. They weren't looking at that. They were looking at Hillary Clinton's emails over and over for, you know, two years on end. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's change the subject. We keep coming back to it, it seems, but uh, change it once again, because you were uh, an ardent observer of the Ferguson story when that was uh, breaking and, and since, too. What's your take on how far we've come since, uh, since Ferguson, since August of 2014? Unfortunately, I don't think we've come that far. I think we need, you know, structural change. We need systemic change. I think we've become we've come far in awareness. I think that, you know, more people are aware of things like corrupt, racist uh, traffic ticket schemes, you know, that boost these municipal economies. They're more aware of how the, you know, the economies are set up. But in terms of how black people are treated in St. Louis and St. Louis Metro, the same problems are there. Like, I haven't heard of any improvement. You're still having people killed by the police. You still have, you know, an unequal school system. You still have job discrimination. You have all of these things in play. And it's very frustrating. You know, I'm glad that some citizens are are standing up, you know. But the other thing that's happened is I think many people are just traumatized. They're exhausted. You know, I, I know a lot of the Ferguson protesters, the ones that are actually from here and stayed here, and they have trouble finding jobs. They have trouble finding bills. And that all they wanted to do was stand up for their constitutional rights and to show support to Mike Brown and his family, you know, and stand up against the idea that a policeman can kill an 18-year-old boy, leave the body on the street for four hours and have nothing happen. That should not be something people are punished for. That should be applauded as citizens standing up for what's right. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. We did a program recently on uh, segregated housing in St. Louis and basically using the Del Mar divide, as we often do, the jumping-off place when we talk about racism. And in spite of the Fair Housing Act of 50 years ago, in spite of the Shelley versus Kramer Supreme Court decision on restrictive covenants, it's just exactly like it was back then. Nothing really has changed. People are really locked into low-quality housing in poor neighborhoods and can't get out. 
Yeah, they they can't. I you know I've written about this before about how the connection you know there's a connection between economic deprivation and, and racial racial discrimination. People often try to treat this issue as you know either or you care about the economy or you care about quote social justice and race, but you cannot separate them. And I think you know St. Louis is an incredible case study of that. And I think we need programs. You know we do need to raise the minimum wage, despite what the Missouri legislature thinks. You know in order to help people out of poverty, and we need to acknowledge that people are in poverty through no fault of their own often. They're born into it, and it's very difficult to work your way out of that situation, you know, and that's something I, I describe in the book in great detail. One of our guests on that program was Jason Purnell, who was the director of the For the Sake of All report. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm betting you might be. But one of the things they point out that in almost adjoining zip codes, the disparity in length of life is as much as 13 years between the more affluent zip code and the poor zip code. I mean, that's pretty stark. Yeah, no, it's a travesty. And, you know, I have an essay in that collection from 2013 where I talk about how, you know, the life expectancy in North St. Louis, you know, which is almost entirely black, mm-hmm. is the same as, you know, I think Iraq, you know, maybe Yemen, you know, as countries <clears throat> that have been through wars, as countries that, you know, have incredible poverty. And then, yeah, as you say, you go a few zip codes away and you have something really, really different. And that's why, you know, I, I get frustrated when I hear this blame of just, you know, pull yourself up or, you know, get yourself out of that situation. You know, when you grow up like that, you're deprived of things like nutrition. You're deprived of things like health care. How are you supposed to defy all those odds? Like, why are you putting that incredible burden on children and mothers and families who are just struggling to get by and are in that situation just because they happen to be born black in North St. Louis? And there doesn't seem to be a national mood to do much about it right now. There's just apathy. I mean, not among everyone, you know, there are people doing this. There are certainly, you know, black folks out advocating for change. I often feel like those movements aren't covered. There's always this attitude of, you know, why don't you take care of your people or whatever? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I see, you know, activism all the time. I mean, it's white people who aren't doing anything. And so, yeah, I would hope that something would come of this. I sort of felt like we were starting to move toward that as a nation, towards this acknowledgement before the election came along. But then unfortunately under Trump, you know, we've had all these new crises. We've had, like, are we going to have a nuclear war with North Korea? Or what's up with all the Nazis? Like, those are our new problems. And so, you know, the serious structural problems of inequality and racism and all these, you know, things we were, we were coping with in, before get kind of swept underneath. But they shouldn't be, both because they help inform the current new crises and because they're crises unto themselves. You know, we had talked shortly before we went on the air, and I mentioned that sometimes I feel like I'm experiencing PTSD with the barrage of news that we're getting and the, you know, the substance that, uh, that we're getting. Do you think that's possible? Do you think the American public is just you know, rocking on its heels because of all of this? I mean, absolutely, because there's almost no one that this administration is hurting. You know, there's the whiplash of the news and a lot of very terrifying stories, you know, about war. The idea that our president is erratic, is, you know, furious, is corrupt, is firing people. There's that. But there's also just, do you know anyone who's an immigrant? Do you know anyone who's not white? Do you know anyone who's a woman? You know, do you know anyone who's a teacher? Do you know anybody who's losing their health care? Like, odds are pretty good. Yeah, you do. And that includes the Trump 
Trump fans, the people who voted for him, they're also getting screwed over by Trump. And some of them, you know, have expressed their displeasure. And I think others are keeping quiet out of this fear that somehow if Trump goes, then, you know, along walks in Hillary or, you know, some sort of awful Democratic travesty. But, you know, the pain of this country is just greater and the fear and, you know, and the protest and the protest aspect is good. But yeah, if God willing, we ever, I don't even know what to say about get out of the situation because we're really going to be dealing with the repercussions of this for decades. But I think it's normal to feel anxious and to feel depressed and to feel upset. And if you feel those things, like let yourself feel them, you know, like take a break. It's like, I work all the time. I talk about this stuff all the time. So people think I'm like against taking a break. It's like, you gotta, you gotta do something for yourself or you're not gonna be able to get through. Again, trying to turn away from politics just a little bit. As you were going through the book and getting it prepared for the the print version that uh, is out now, we mentioned earlier that many of the things you wrote about four or five years ago apply today. What struck you as you were as you were going through it about the things that haven't changed that are really important to us? You know, I mean, it's always weird to reread your own work. I mean, I guess one of the strangest feelings I had, I wouldn't describe it exactly as nostalgia for these times because I write about very depressing things, but this sort of sense that, you know, we really have turned a historical corner. And I think we all knew that, that when Trump was inaugurated, things were going to be very different. And I think, you know, if anything, this just shows you need to take care of these structural problems, these deep-seated issues before they culminate into something like the election of Donald Trump. There are a couple essays in there that sort of stood out, like the one I wrote about paranoia and conspiracy theories uh, as part of American life. I was like, wow, like that really developed in a way um, that is is just breathtakingly out of control now. And, you know, that's something that, that I think, uh, you know, we need to explore in more detail. One of the words that keeps popping up in my rereading of it is the word exploitation. You, you see that in many different arenas, don't you? Yeah. Young people, business, uh, you name it, and people are being exploited. Yeah, and it's very hard to avoid. You know, and that's one of the reasons I focused on higher education to a certain degree, because that was always thought of as a path out of hardship, out of poverty, and out of, you know, exploitation. You know, if you achieve at a certain level, you get a good job, you get security, you get power. Um, you know, and if there's a subject this book is about, it's really about power. I don't think anyone has that security anymore. It doesn't matter if you have a PhD or a GED. You know, odds are you are working at a job that makes it difficult to pay your bills. And I say that because most PhDs are working in, in temporary positions working as adjuncts, you have certain advantages because in America, they punish you if you don't get a college degree. They hold that against you on the job market, even if that college degree has absolutely nothing to do with the skills required to do your job. We didn't used to need a college degree for all these things. And I'm um, against credentialism. I wish jobs would stop requiring them because I, I think they're you know enormously expensive um, and unnecessary. And in that way, weirdly, I'm aligned with Donald Trump. Mm. <laughs> that's the only thing that mm. McDonald's. Um, but yeah, uh, you know that's, that's something that, that continues to this day, and the more that people consolidate power uh, and the less accountability we have, the worse it's going to get. You, you would talk about privilege as well, and tying that in with education, I remember a story, and I don't have the details quite right, but uh, kids going to school at Harvard from very privileged families, and what the families are entitled to in order to get those kids into the school. Could you tell that story? 
Yeah, I mean, something like, I mean, well over half, I think, of, of Harvard, the Harvard entering class, I reference, you know, I have families that make something over $200,000, um, you know, often quite more than that, you know, in the millions. Uh, and almost nobody with an income of below like $45,000 gets in. That's a very small part. The median income is around, you know, $52,000. And so we don't have a representative body entering Harvard. We have people like Jared Kushner, whose family, you know, gave an enormous amount of money. Uh, for him to get in. That's the kind of people we have going. But that that prestige, that name brand is still held up as some kind of achievement. And I think it's really unmerited. Um, and it kind of parallels the geographical inequality, where if you're you know successful in New York, uh, that means one thing. That means that it really matters. It's really important. You must have something smart to say. If you're doing the same kind of work in Missouri and you're staying there by choice, then you know people are, are shocked that you like have all your teeth. I mean, it's really like an <laughs> incredible uh, double standard, and you know, it's it's not beneficial to a, a healthy nation. We should look at what people do, you know, what they contribute, how they treat others, and not how much money they have, where they went to school, you know, all this nonsensical stuff because it's no longer a reflection of merit. And when some of those kids get out of school, they they network with each other and they help each other. Well. The rest of us need help, don't get it. Yeah, it's very insulated. You know, I've been close enough to it that I've been able to watch how it works, you know, firsthand. I mean, there's a little of that going on at Wash U, where I went for my PhD. And, and it's dangerous. I think I have a line in the book, like, a false meritocracy breeds mediocrity. And we certainly see the effects of that in our political spheres, in our media. You know, we're not getting the best. And when it comes to something like public servants, people deserve the best, the best minds, the people, you know, with the most compassion and intelligence and awareness of, of current affairs. And they're not getting that. They're getting Ivanka Trump, you know, and so that's where we are. I'm just looking for a quote here from, uh, from one of your pieces, and it is this, the poor, the unemployed are vilified for the things that they lack. Yeah, absolutely. And that continues. I mean, that's something that has been going on for a long time. Like when, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson launched the war on poverty by the Reagan era, it was a war on the poor. It was, you know, looking at poor people as if they're greedy, you know, they're sucking off of the government, they're purposefully lazy, not looking at the reasons people get in the situation, not looking at how easy it is to fall in that situation. And I think that that actually helped Trump this idea because his fans who themselves were going through incredible hard Hardship, I think, had internalized that sense of shame, and they didn't want to feel that. They didn't want to feel like they had screwed up, that they had harmed their family. And in many cases, they didn't. They got laid off from somewhere, and it wasn't their fault. But I think when you feel shame about yourself, it can go two ways. You can become more compassionate for others, or it will come out as hate. You'll want to feel part of a group. You'll want to feel like you're getting back some power. And I think that Trump allowed people to feel like they were getting back that power by being part of his movement. And I think it was Ronald Reagan who coined the term welfare queens. Right. And which, you know, is a caricature of a person who never existed. A lot of those stories, you know, that came out in the 80s that, you know, I grew up with as a kid, um, not really thinking they were true, but thinking this is normal political rhetoric. I, I didn't question it as something new until I was older and realized what uh, departure it was, what something like the way he talked about unions and what happened to unions in the 80s. Like, to me, a union was something my, my grandparents were in. We don't need them anymore. I really thought that that was it when I was like a teenager. And then I was like, whoa, we have like an entire labor. I mean, my grandparents set me straight. <laughs> but yeah, we have a whole history that, that's being destroyed, purposely destroyed. And I was glad to see unions kind of coming back into the picture around 2012, 2013. But, you know, it's, it's now kind of going the other way again. 
They don't like that. There's still only 10 or 12% of the workforce where they used to be three times that, not too many years ago. Right. We are at Left Bank Books, and we're going to be taking questions from the audience. And we will begin with you, sir. What is your name? My name is Tobea. I'm a federal insurance navigator here in St. Louis, helping people get enrolled in Marketplace and uh, Medicaid, Medicare plans. I had a question for you about what you were talking about, the moral necessity of the work that you do. It makes me think about Hannah Arendt and the similar question she was asking uh, during the Nazi rise to power. And I guess my question to you is, what scares you most right now with uh, an eye to that banality of evil? Wow, you don't want to know what scares me most. Um, you know, yeah, with Arendt, the idea of the banality of evil, you know, that it doesn't come out you immediately, that people will just stand by and let atrocities happen, um, you know, that is something that, that does haunt me. Um, I do think that people are not accepting this administration. Not everybody. People are worn out. People are tired. What, I guess, broadly scares me most is the impunity, the flaunting of crimes, and the lack of consequences, the lack of accountability, because we have people in our government committing crimes and confessing to them even in plain sight, and then you wait. You wait and wait and wait for them to be indicted, for them to be removed from office, for something to happen to them, because, you know, a regular citizen could do something, you know, a fraction of what they do and end up in jail. And it's just not happening, and so you're left with the sense of like, well, who's really running the show here? Who's going to bring those charges? And that speaks to me of consolidation. And that's what I worry is happening. And I don't think it's too late. I think that we should keep fighting it. But I am concerned that this has continued for such a long time without consequences. We have some more questions. Let's take them. Hi, I'm Linda from University City. And thank you very much for your work. My concern, and I think Don spoke to it a little bit, is that here we are, and we're all listening to you. But I kind of feel like you're preaching to the choir. I was listening to Sean Hannity on PBS NewsHour tonight, and Fox News is, doesn't seem to be interested in changing, and that really concerns me for the future of the United States. And what can we do as citizens when you've got this huge monolithic group on the, on the right you know, that is so tied into the evangelical Christians? I mean, what can we do as people? Right. Know, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think to some extent... You know, there are people that are not going to be reached. They really don't want to be reached. They're unwilling to to be confronted uh, with a different narrative, with different facts. I think the most kind of important group of the 2016 election are the people who didn't vote, which is about half of the country, or people who are ambivalent, or people who are confused. You know, I think we often see these these extremes presented in the narrative. Everybody's like really hardcore for Trump, or they're really hardcore for the Democratic Party. I think most people are disillusioned and anxious, and they're somewhere in the middle. So there are places, there are things that, you know, broadly as a society, we often can agree about. And I think you also shouldn't expect someone to agree with you about everything. I mean, that would be weird. That would actually be terrible. That would be a sign of an authoritarian state. So it's good to have healthy disagreements, good to have debate. And, you know, and so try to find those points of commonality. Like sometimes when I've talked to people who, you know, who vote for Trump or who are very conservative, we can often find a point of commonality. And then I'll try to kind of widen the debate from there to see if we can find another one or if I can, you know, sort of just at least show him how I see things. And you can see that my view is not unreasonable, even if it's a view that, that he still disagrees with. Another question, please. Hi, my name is Barbara. I'm from Webster Groves. I'm very concerned about the Russian influence in our government and the seriousness of the influence in the 2016 election. 
And I was wondering if you think some failure in the United States government's attitude or diplomacy with Russia in the recent past, but before Trump, contributed to this problem? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely did. It wasn't exactly a failure of diplomacy as a sort of sense of they can't really hurt us or this isn't serious. I think that, you know, after Russia uh, invaded Crimea, the U.S. should have been aware of what was going on. And I think in terms of the particular crisis involving Trump, one thing that really astonished me when I was covering the election, you know, I, I can read Russian. I studied Russian for graduate school. So I started to look at what the Russian state media had to say about the election. And I was going all the way back to 2014. And over and over, they were building up Trump. They were saying he was a hero. They were saying he was going to bring glory to Russia. They were just out front, you know, building him up for a Russian domestic audience. And I kept thinking, how did this get by the American media? Because this is weird. Like, this is the host of Celebrity Apprentice. He was not, a, you know, a kind of uh, uh, somebody who they thought would be the president. So it implied to me that they knew something in advance. Other people, um, political scientists who study Russia, noticed this as well and thought, well, this is incredibly strange. And they thought, oh, maybe there's just a cultural similarity between Trump and some, uh, you know, colorful Russian politicians or oligarchs or whatnot, but it wasn't really that. It was, you know, the beginning of a propaganda initiative. And it is very disappointing to me that the government didn't take it seriously. You know, I think the Obama administration really blew it. Um, and I think that they especially did during the transition period when they had an opportunity to kind of call this out. You know, I I just want people to know the truth. I want Americans to know the truth. And I think it's the obligation of presidents, of FBI heads, of everybody. You know, it's not a partisan issue. I'm angry at both parties. I'm much more angry at the Republicans right now. But nonetheless, they had an obligation to tell us this. This is a danger to our national security. When a major threat like this happens, you got to just tell people, even if it sounds nuts, even if it sounds like a Tom Clancy novel, you still have to tell the people. So, yeah, they messed up. We're going to have to wrap this up. But I have one more quote here that I just want to re- I want you to respond to because it's too good not to mention. And you write that America is not red or blue, but purple, the color of a bruise. Yeah, originally, um, that's an expansion of a line I used once in an essay about Missouri and an essay about the Midwest. But, you know, I think it's true. You know, there are these stereotypes of red states and blue states, whereas if you look at an actual map, you know, of course you get a mix of people. Of course people have different ideologies, have different opinions, and, and that's healthy, that's good. But I do think that we we have a shared sense of pain, um, of disillusionment, of anxiety, of disappointment. Um, and I I think that that pain is easily exploited. I think that pain is visible, like a a bruise. I think it's something people see in each other, and we don't know quite how to cope with it. Um, And, you know, it it scares me that we have a government that preys on it instead of tries to remedy it. But I'm glad that we have a citizenry, you know, that will stand up for other people um, in a large part. Your crystal ball worked very well with the Trump election. What do you see in it right now for the future? You don't want to know. <laughs> ah, I mean, there are some bad things that I, I think are coming that if they're not coming, I, I don't want to talk about it. But there's one thing I, I do want people to sort of be aware of. Everyone's kind of looking at the 2018 midterms. It's like, OK, this is our chance to you know turn the tide a little bit. I do think that the prospect of a, a Democratic win or even a sweep is likely if, you know, and that's not everything. There's other problems you have to fix. It's not just about voting. But anyway, we need to be looking at voter suppression. We need to be looking at voter ID laws. This happened in 2016 after the partial repeal of the VRA. 
right? We need to look at domestic suppression and we need to look at, you know, foreign intervention from Russia. And then we also need to look, unfortunately, at the way that those narratives can be useful for the GOP. Say there's a democratic sweep. What if Trump then says, oh, actually, that was Russia. All those votes are illegitimate. It was totally Russia that did it, which makes no sense because the reason that Russia interfered with our elections is basically for sanctions for oligarchs in order to get that policy passed. So they would not intervene on the democratic side. I can unfortunately envision a scenario where this happens. We need to protect the integrity of our elections. And I think the best way to do that is to make everything as transparent as possible, to have officials who are really documenting this hard, you know, so we cannot have fakes all over the internet. We cannot have fake news. We cannot have false claims because they will try it. And it's grotesque, but I do think that it's going to happen and it's something we should all keep an eye on. Sarah, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Author journalist Sarah Kenziar talking about her book, The View from Flyover Country, recorded last week at Left Bank Books in the Central West End. Archived versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs are available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.